Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, everybody. Why, you might fairly ask, am I interviewing Rain Wilson, best known for his star turn on the sitcom The Office, playing Dwight Schrute, the hilariously dysregulated paper salesman with a lust for power and a tragic haircut? Why, you may ask, am I interviewing that dude about mental health and spirituality? Because in real life, Rain Wilson has spent many, many years wrestling with religion, sobriety, and marital ups and downs. And he's got a, a new book called Soul Boom, in which he cracks a lot of jokes and also makes a dead serious case uh, for a spiritual revolution. I'll explain exactly what he means by that. In this conversation, we also talk about the role of the Baha'i faith in his life. He'll explain what the Baha'i faith is all about, why he was so miserable at the height of the office's popularity. I found that fascinating. What he considers his greatest achievement in life, the importance of spiritual pilgrimage, and the ingredients of the perfect religion, which he insists must include potlucks. A little bit more about Rain before we dive in here. He won three Emmys for his work on The Office. He hosts a podcast called Metaphysical Milkshake, and he's got a new travel series on Peacock called Rain Wilson and the Geography of Bliss. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, they've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. 
They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. I always love it when uh, the people behind a product that my family already uses tell us that they want to be sponsors of this show. Today, it's Tidy Cats. As you may know, we have uh, an unreasonable amount of cats, four of them. So we use a lot of kitty litter, and Tidy Cats is great. Uh, they have a product called Tidy Care Alert, which uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one or four cats, they make it easy to keep track. Plus, it's low dust and lightweight with long-lasting ammonia control from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. I'm not a vet, but I do love cats. Tidy Cats. Check them out. Rain Wilson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan Harris. Thanks for having me on the show. Huge pleasure. I am a longtime fan, so it's really nice to get to talk to you face-to-face, -face, albeit uh, virtually. Let me ask you this. What is a soul boom? A soul boom is a much-needed spiritual reboot. I feel passionately that us Americans in contemporary life have discarded so much about spirituality because we have such a profound distaste of most religion that we've kind of thrown the spiritual baby out with the religious bathwater. And there are really beautiful and powerful spiritual tools that can make our lives better. And not only personally, but can help our society transform for the better. All right. There are a million things I want to ask you about all that. Let me just start with on a definitional tip here. What do you mean by spiritual? I am talking about seances that raise the dead. Interview over. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Dan, I see, I know I can go there with you. Most podcasters would be like, mm -hmm. but truth be told, that is a super important question. You've been at this a long time. You understand that because people have very different definitions. To some people, it does mean ghosts. To some people, it means going to church on Sunday. And that's what spiritual is and what it means. To me, it's, Anything that has to do with being a human being that is not of the material. So my body, what does my body want and need? It needs food and drink, right? Occasionally sex with my wife. It needs shelter. It wants comfort. And the kind of primal part of my animal brain wants a certain social status, right? A so certain social capital, which is very important to us human beings and to building societies. Putting all that aside, the rest of the stuff is spiritual. It's my heart. It's my consciousness. It's my soul, the light of my divine qualities of kindness, humility, openness, compassion, honesty, all of those divine qualities that we all have within us. That is what spirituality is, but it's of the soul and the spirit. 
And in this case, do you mean soul in the classic religious sense that there's some essence of us that is immaterial? Well, I wouldn't say immaterial, but I would say that, yes, I believe from my own personal faith tradition and from a lot of study and reading that we are spiritual beings and we are having a human experience. As Father Teilhard de Chardin famously said, we've got 80 or 90 years, if we're lucky, in these meat suits and our reality, our spiritual reality continues after our bodies fall away. Just as babies in the womb had one reality, that was our kind of first reality, and we were growing arms and ears and legs and eyelashes that we were going to need on this physical plane, we are growing spiritual qualities on this material plane for our wherever our journey takes us. This is backed up by every faith tradition. Now, some will say, well, you know, in Hindu tradition, you come back. Sometimes you come back. Sometimes you continue. If you're arrived and enlightened, sometimes you choose to return as a bodhisattva. But every faith tradition has some kind of idea that we are more than the material and that our journey continues after death in some way, shape, or form. And I buy it. I'm in. Sign rain all the way up. Having said that, though, my limited understanding of Buddhism, a foundational principle of the Buddha and just to say this podcast is heavily influenced by Buddhism. Sure. Um, one of his foundational principles was there is no soul. There is no self. There is no nugget of rain hiding behind your eye sockets somewhere that actually the thing to see is you are inextricably intermeshed with the universe. Yeah. So there's a lot of different interpretations, of, obviously, of Buddhist teachings and what the Buddha meant and what the Buddha actually said versus what a lot of his disciples said. And I know that you've done on your podcast a lot of deep dives into, into really the reality of the Buddha. I love what you're doing. This new series about getting to know the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths on, and the life of the Buddha. So I'm no authority at all. But even if you believe in the idea of the Bodhisattva that you have a reality and your body dies. And this arrived, enlightened, awakened, because Buddha means the awakened one, if this awakened reality part of yourself chooses to, it can return to another corporal existence to further the work of increasing compassion and reducing suffering. So whatever that is, seems like a soul to me. It's maybe just a different definition. Here's how I would change it. In the Baha'i faith tradition, I'm a member of the Baha'i faith, this oneness that the Buddha is talking about. And when you go back to the Vedas and Upanishads and the Venantic thought of the reality is we are all one, this illusion of separateness is inherent to part of the suffering that we're all undergoing. This illusion of separateness can best be described metaphorically in the Baha'i tradition as thinking about the ocean. So there is this incredibly beautiful ocean and there are waves on the ocean and we're all waves on this sea. So are we individuals? Yes. Is a wave an individual thing? Yeah. Is the wave part of something much bigger? Of course. Both of those things can be true. There's not a dichotomy between the individual and the collective. But I draw ever closer to enlightenment by releasing those boundaries that separate us. And that's part of our 
spiritual journey. And, and again, you can find that in the Bible with Jesus. You can find that with Muhammad. I have a section in Soul Boom, Dan Harris. Oh, look, I happen to have a copy right here. I have a section about religion in here. I have a chapter called, Hey Kids, Let's Build the Perfect Religion, where I we talk about finding the bits and bops and dudes and dads of all the faith traditions that we love the most and putting them together in one big jambalaya soup of a new religion. But before that, I have a chapter called The Fabulous Foundations of Faith, where I discuss the universalities of religion, because it's really easy to look at the differences, let's say, between Buddhism and Islam, which seem wildly different at first blush in so many ways. But if you put that aside a little bit and dig a little deeper, there are some foundational elements that are 100% in alignment. And so the book is not to propound any specific religious faith. It's to dig into spiritual ideas. So I want us all to like, okay, let's, we've got some differences between the faiths. Let's put them aside. Let's let, look at the universalities and what we can learn from them. I want to go into those lists a little bit later in this interview, just so people have a more of a sense of who they're listening to though, who you are. Can you educate us a little bit about the Baha'i faith and its role in your life? Sure. Who I am is a ridiculous-looking sitcom actor. So for those who are just listening to the dulcet tones of my voice on the podcast app of your choice. But this particular actor was raised a member of the Baha'i faith. And that was really beautiful and cool. I left the Baha'i faith for a very long time in my... 20s and early 30s and started my own personal spiritual quest during that time. But for those who don't know, the Baha'i faith is very accepting and inclusive of all the different faith traditions. And that is its foundation. There is only one God. This God is not an old white man with a beard on a cloud. Obviously, no one really believes that, but there's nothing that is like a deity or a persona or a person or like a demigod who can throw lightning bolts and find you parking spaces. And that's not what God is. But this unknowable force that's beyond time and space that exists in this universe and in infinite other universes. Anyway, that's a whole different topic of conversation. But this God force, for lack of a better word, sends down divine teachers to humanity every 500 or 1,000 years or so. These include Lord Krishna, the Buddha, the Abrahamic faiths, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, the prophet Muhammad. And Baha'is also believe that there is a new, what Baha'is would call a manifestation, not a prophet, but a manifestation of God, because that's what these holy teachers are, named Baha'u'llah. And Baha'u'llah lived in the 19th century in Persia and the Middle East. He spent his whole life in jail and being banished and tortured, essentially, like all of these spiritual teachers do. They're like, hey, we believe in love. Oh, let's persecute you and attack you and imprison you and crucify you. So Baha'is are also believers in the teachings of Baha'u'llah, and that name means the glory of God. That was a title that was given to him. And Baha'is work for peace and love and unity in lots of different ways, and we accept the essential teachings of the world's faith traditions. So that, I think I'm using this word 
correctly, I think, that syncretic impulse, that ecumenical impulse of let's combine different philosophies, worldviews, that seems to be feeding quite powerfully into your new book. Yes, it does very much. The book is very inspired by the Baha'i faith in a lot of different ways. It's not a Baha'i book. I'm not trying to convert people to Baha'i. It's really not about that. It's just a playground of ideas about spirituality and kind of shaking things up and getting people to think about and talk about spiritual concepts in some fresh ways. You said you left the Baha'i faith in your 20s and 30s. Have you come back to it? And what does your practice or participation look like? I have come back to it. I spent a lot of dark nights of the soul in a kind of mental health journey of my own. I know that you suffer from and have suffered from anxiety. I did the same. I had a period of time in my 20s where I had crippling anxiety attacks that would leave me on the floor sweating and shaking. I had a lot of depression and addiction issues and loneliness and alienation and As I had jettisoned my faith, I thought, and I've used this phrase before, but I love it. I kind of thought, have I thrown the spiritual baby out with the religious bathwater by jettisoning religion and I'm so miserable, maybe there's a spiritual solution to what I'm going through. It's similar in a lot of ways to your path. So I read the Bible and I read the Bhagavad Gita and I read the Quran and I read as much as the Rig Veda and Panishads as I could understand and really did a deep exploration. And eventually, after a very long period of time, at least 12 years, came back to the Baha'i faith. So I am a member of the Baha'i faith. What does that look like for Baha'is? There's no clergy in the Baha'i faith, which I love. There's no priests or mullahs or gurus or anything like that. It's a democratically elected and run organization, not dissimilar from like how a 12-step program runs itself. And I get up in the morning and I read holy writings from the Baha'i writings. At some point in time during the day, I say a special prayer, similar to the Muslims who bow five times to Mecca, Baha'is once a day turn their hearts toward the holy land in the Baha'i faith, which is in Israel, in Haifa, Israel, where Baha'u'llah is buried. And I say, I bear witness, O my God, that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. I testify at this moment to my powerlessness and to thy might, to my poverty and to thy wealth, that there is none other God but the help in peril the self subsisting. I read a holy writing at night. I have a prayer and meditation practice that I do. And there is a period of time in the year where Baha'is do a fast, a spiritual fast, similar to Ramadan in some ways. And then I try and work to bring light to the world and make people laugh and make the world a better place and be of service. And that's what it is to be a Baha'i. Can you go over the words of that prayer that you say... Yeah. Can you do those again? So I bear witness, O my God, that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. So I love that first sentence of the prayer because it says, and I think Baha'u'llah has given it to us Baha'is to say for a very specific reason. It's the meaning of life. We have been created to know and worship God. Now, let me stop you right there. And I know there's a lot of skeptical Buddhists out there going, wow. What does that mean to know and worship God? 
At first blush, do you mind me going off on this, Dan? I love whatever the opposite of mind is. I love it. <laughs> okay, I like that. So at first blush, you're like, to know and worship God. Okay, what does that mean? I'm going to read stories from holy books, and I'm going to say a lot of prayers and say, oh, God, you're so great. I love you, God. You're so wonderful. That's what that means. But you dig a little deeper. In the Baha'i teachings, the one aspect of God that is most accentuated is that God is unknowable. The unknowable essence he's called throughout the divine Baha'i writings. So we're supposed to know the unknowable. And that is a dichotomy that I love. That is, it's really impossible. God is an unknowable essence, and yet we seek to know him. How do we do that? Through the arts, through sciences. Einstein was very much, you read his quotes, on a journey towards trying to understand God through an understanding of the mysteries of the universe and cosmology. By knowing other people, it says in the Quran, to know God is to know thyself. Or actually, that's a, is it from the Quran? It might be a hadith. But to know God is to know thyself. So as we get to know those divine components of who we are, that's also getting to know God. Now let's talk about worshiping God. In the Baha'i framework of worshiping God, the highest form of worship is service to others. Yes, there are prayers in the Baha'i faith, and you can certainly say, God, you're so wonderful. And Lamont has that wonderful book called Help, Thanks, Wow, with the three kinds of prayers. I love that title. <laughs> it's help, which is you can ask, hey, God, help me. My cousin is sick. Thanks, which is praise and gratitude, which you Buddhists love the gratitude. I'm grateful for this beautiful flannel shirt. And I get to talk to Dan Harris and he knows so much about happiness. And wow is, gosh, life is so short and beautiful and wonderful, and the universe is so magnificent. So those are the three prayers in her book, and I love that book. Worshiping God is service to others. Also in the Baha'i faith, the creation of arts and sciences is worship of God. So you might be listening and you're like an electrical engineer making the world better by bridging power grids, right? That's worship of God. Anything that is bringing people together, using your creative faculty, your imagination, your mission of service to others is worship of God. So when you unpack that sentence, it becomes a lot more mystical and variegated than you would think at first blush. Yeah. And I know there's more to get to from the prayer, but just to say, I think this doesn't really describe me anymore, but I think the, uh, an older version of me, when I heard somebody reference God, it just sounded creepy. But what you're describing is, at least in my ears, inarguable. I mean, we, there's so much mystery in the universe. We don't even know if there's just one universe. And there's some mysterious animating force, if not forces, behind or enmeshed into everything. We don't know what consciousness is, how it arose. And so when you say get to know God, even though you're gendering God as a he, but you're really talking, it seems to me, you'll correct me, about being engaged with life instead of just engaging with the minutia of your ego, trying to butt heads with the mystery a little bit. I love that you used the word mystery two or three times because 
when I was feeling the same way as you did years ago, where God felt creepy. I thought about God and it just, it was so patriarchal. It was just like this male energy. It was judgmental. It was like watching me like, oh, I'm doing these drugs and God is up there going, that's no good. You suck doing those drugs, Rain. As if God is like your Uncle Carl or something. I really, really struggled for years. But I decided to go on a deeper dive. A lot of people stop there and I will pat myself on the back. Forgive me, I'm going to ring my own bell here. I wanted to dive deeper and try and really understand what was meant by the word God. In fact, I have a chapter in my book called The Notorious G-O-D. I'm digressing here, but based on a television show I tried to pitch called The Notorious G-O-D, I wanted to do a TV show about God because I went on this quest looking for what God could possibly mean. And I thought it would be fun to talk to scientists and AI programmers and pygmies living in the bush and born-again Pentecostals and New Age thinkers and atheists, and let's explore this concept. It's one of the most ancient concepts in human history and one of the most important and influences the course of our lives. So I had a pitch deck and a sizzle reel, and we went out. I had episodes outlined and the whole thing. It got, of course, turned down everywhere. And the best thing I ever heard was from Netflix, and they said, yeah, we're sorry, the topic is just too controversial. (laughs) So that is so typical of Hollywood. Oh, really, Netflix? So you can have drunk housewives of Dallas throwing garbage at each other and the boobs slip out and then someone hits each other and vomits and then they all hook up. That's okay. (laughs) That's perfectly fine. That's light entertainment. But an exploration of God is too controversial. So that's where we are as a culture. To say nothing of their miniseries on Jeffrey Dahmer. And it was the number one show. Anyways, that's a separate topic. I'm getting back to the word mystery that you used. When I went on this journey, I read a lot of Native American spirituality. And I came across this idea from the Lakota Sioux called Wakantanka, which is the name for a higher power, which literally translates as the great mystery. You could say the great spirit, but also the great mystery. And as soon as I read that, it stopped me in my tracks. I was like, wow, I love mysteries. I'm not talking about mystery podcasts. I'm talking about like existential mysteries of being alive. And their conception, as far as I, in my limited white man understanding of it, is that this power that is beyond time and space runs through nature and runs through beauty and runs through the wind in the trees, that is the power of the ancestors that is beyond time and space, like I said, that can be felt in the four directions. In fact, there's seven directions. There's four directions, then there's up and down, and the seventh direction is in, internal. That this all-loving natural force is how they understand, quote-unquote, God, and that nature is all a metaphor. So the sun is a reflection of the power, light, and strength of God. The rains are the abundance and bounty of God. The springtime and the growing of the crops is how the gifts are given to us. And it goes on and on. So that was a big part of my journey as well. There was more to the prayer, though. Can you do the... the, Okay. Maybe there was a second stanza. 
Yeah, I testify at this moment to my powerlessness and to thy might, to my poverty and to thy wealth, that there is none other God but the help in peril, the self-subsisting. So for me, when I say that prayer, and in my work, in my meditation practice, in my prayer practice, because I try and do both, humility is important. I mean, I'm naturally arrogant and entitled and it's important for me to humble myself and in remembering that this great mystery has all of reality in this universe and infinite other universes beyond this one. He, for lack of a better pronoun, is all powerful and I am and I am weak. And just being in that state of submission that there's great mystery and power and beauty in that act of prayer. Coming up, Rain Wilson talks about why he thinks we need a spiritual revolution and what exactly that means, and the importance of spiritual pilgrimage. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs, like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com deals. I had a very pleasant experience shopping on quince.com. Very easy to use website, and they've got a terrific selection. I bought myself a cashmere sweater and a sweatshirt. That sweatshirt in particular is an extremely heavy rotation. If you watch the YouTube version of this podcast, you will see it. Or if you see me on social media occasionally, I'm wearing my Quince sweatshirt. And I have to say, uh, the prices are hard to beat for a luxury brand. What's more, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. So you got back into the faith of your upbringing a little bit later in your life. I'm just curious to map some of the anecdotes you've shared about your own sort of mental health onto what we know about your career. Were you having bouts of anxiety and depression while you were on the office? Was this before? Help us put it in the timeline. I would go into Steve Carell's trailer and throw <laughs> up on his couch and he would come in and be like, what the hell? I'm like, Steve, I'm so anxious. I'm just kidding. We jest, Dan, we have fun while we talk about very deadly serious topics. By that time I was in recovery, by that time I was deep into therapy and I wasn't dealing with anxiety in the same way. 
during those office years. It's funny though, because I had a recent conversation with BJ Novak. We did a book event at the 92nd Street Y and someone asked, what do you regret about the office? And it's funny, we both had the same regret, which is, and this is very much in line with your podcast, your audience and Buddhist philosophy, which is, I did not enjoy it while it was there. I was not in the moment and drinking in my gratitude for having the greatest job ever. So when I was on The Office, we were getting Emmy nominations. I was getting Emmy nominations. I was making a lot of money. I was working with beautiful people, making great comedy of a terrific show. It doesn't get better than that. Rain, let that be enough. And it wasn't enough for me. And I was like, well, I want this other movie and I want a studio deal and I want to have a first look deal and how come I'm not getting paid for this? And I want, and that hungry ghost part of myself was really activated. So I struggled with that for a lot of The Office. And and frankly, I spent a lot of it really unhappy because I was just trying to get the next thing or the bigger thing or why am I not as big a movie star as Will Ferrell and Jack Black? And, and comparing and all the things us humans do. And it just, it wasn't enough. And I wish it had just been enough. And I wish I could have just been like, I'm just going to just revel in these nine years of playing this amazing character with this amazing group of people. And I, I couldn't do it. So that's a symptom of my anxiety, of the spiritual disease that I've been struggling with. I will say, and this is a funny story, and it's totally true. All of a sudden, Dan, my anxiety, if I just address my anxiety, started to flare up on talk shows. And I had a crippling fear of going on talk shows, especially ones in front of a, like a live studio audience. It was a little bit cray. And it was also a little bit understandable, considering my background. I had this unnatural fear that I was going to freeze up and not have anything to say. And people weren't going to laugh. They weren't going to like me. And I would repeatedly stay up. You can ask my wife. I would get like three or four hours of sleep. I would have diarrhea. I would just be going over like my quote-unquote material, the stories I was going to tell on the talk shows. And... It was brutal and it took a lot of work. It took therapy. I did hypnosis. I did EMDR to try and get to a point where I could do a talk show with kind of grace and ease and without kind of crippling anxiety. I appreciate so much of what you just said and really relate to it. Just a, this may be a superficial place to begin in the wake of the rather profound things you just said, revelations that you just shared with us. But just on, on talk shows, I'd always, I've never been on one of the late night talk shows. I guess I've been on The Daily Show. But on The Daily Show or Colbert back in the day, it wasn't rehearsed. It was really extemporized, at least as, as the guest. I didn't know what they were going to ask me in advance. But I thought on the late night talk shows, if you went on Fallon or whatever, that actually you went through a rehearsal beforehand with the host, et cetera, et cetera. So why would that be so different from being on a TV show? Unlike on The Office, a scripted show. So you, you don't do a rehearsal. You don't. You talk to a producer a couple of days beforehand or a day or two beforehand, and they ask you a bunch of questions and they ask you, are there stuff you want to talk about or do you have a funny story? And they look at your 
social posts and they say, oh, I hear recently that you adopted a donkey. Why don't you tell us about that? And you do this banter with a producer and out of that, the producer kind of like figures out, oh, here's a really funny story and here's the three or four things we could talk about. And they go over it with the talk show host the day of. Without you, they'd say Rain can talk about his donkey and then Rain can talk about his new show or his project or whatever. So it's this weird hybrid on a talk show. And this is what screwed me up is it's not memorized, but it's pretty beaded out like what they want you to talk about. But you can also improvise if you want because those talk show hosts are so good. But that balance always threw me. And also the fact that there's this big audience, but then there's a camera that's on you like this big. Do you play to the camera and the host or do you play to the audience? And I always like was like, because I come from the theater, like, do I play to... But if you play to the audience, then you're really big but because you're being captured on this camera. And do you improvise or do you go? And so I'm trying to remember the story and trying to make it as funny as I told it when I first told it, which is never quite as funny. And I would rehearse it and go over it in my head over and it would get stale and canned. And I get messed me up, plain and simple. I hear it in your retelling that you re, you just got coiled up into intense overthinking. Yes, the more profound thing you talked about, though, was the hungry ghost, which I relate to. I mean, I ruined, I was in the news business for 30 years and basically ruined many of those years by doing exactly what you described, this sense of insufficiency and comparison. Yeah. So I, I really relate to it. I think a lot of people will. And just out of curiosity, and you may have spoken about it before, but how does that manifest for a news guy? It's kind of like, well, I want the anchor desk at 7 p.m. or I need yes. a better show or... So I was never in 24-hour news. I was on ABC News, so there were very few slots throughout the day. But who's going to get the big job on Good Morning America or World News Tonight or Nightline, our three principal shows? Why did that person get it? And then on a slightly lower level, like who's getting to cover what stories? Oh, why did that person get sent to Iraq and oh. I wanted it? And yeah, it's pretty intense. And I did not handle it well. Yeah, I didn't handle the office stuff well. And mostly it just made me a jerk. And I, I did not handle my marriage very well either. Because mm. I was, I would rage and I would get depressed. And I was just talking about myself and my career nonstop. And, you know, fortunately, I had good therapy and I just kept working at it. And it got better. And I would say by, I don't want to put a date on it, but 2010, 11, I was much, much better. And it's been just so much better since then. And the years since The Office have been wonderful. Like, I haven't, as an actor, I haven't really hit much that has really taken off that people, you know, mostly love The Office. But I've loved it. I've played some great, interesting roles. And I get to be on Star Trek. And I get to do big action movies. And I've gotten to do weird little comedies and indie films and play dramatic roles. And no one's really watching them. And guess what? I don't really care that much. I get to play great roles. And that's why I got into this business. How did you get to the point of not caring? And by the way, this is a sort of a healthy not caring as opposed yeah. to a nihilism. How did you get to that, let's just call it healthy apathy? I know that's a contradiction in terms, but how did you arrive at that after being, as I said before, coiled for so long? I'm asking for a friend. No, <laughs> great question. I don't have, I, I have one realization that I made, but uh, let me actually, let me start with that. So my main realization was it really had to do with the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. I know most of your 
listeners know it already. But I want to parse it out to say that grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. What can't I change? I can't change if audiences like me in other roles or not. I can't change if Judd Apatow doesn't want to cast me in his next big studio comedy. I can't change if a studio or network doesn't want to make a show with me or do something with me. It's completely out of my control. It's like I have chosen to have a career in Hollywood, which is one of the most unfair, crazy-making, (laughs) upside-down places in the world. I've chosen to make my living there. In a lot of ways, it's like a giant popularity contest. Who's hot and who's not? And a lot of my movies that I tried bombed and no one watched them. And that's fine. That happens sometimes to people, to talented people. And all that's out of my control. So day in, day out, whether someone wants to make a movie with me, whether someone wants to watch the indie film that I did, it's out of my control. The courage to do the things I can, what can I do? I can be writing scripts. I can be meeting filmmakers. I can be generating projects. I can have meetings with folks. I started a production company called Soul Pancake that was an uplifting digital media company for years that we ran. I can try and make a difference in the world. And so that's where I put my focus. Now, there's more to it than that. It was 12-step meetings. It was therapy. It was talking to my wife. It was meditation. It was surrender to God, like the prayer that we talked about. And a lot of it has to do with my worst defects as a person, which is people-pleasing. Scratch any actor and underneath, you maybe a newsman too, you get, I hope you like me. (laughs) And I had a lot of that. People-pleasing and codependence too, and letting that go. And yeah, but it's been a long, it's been a long process, but oh man, it's been such a relief. These last 10, 12 years have just been so nice. I could sense it through the ones and zeros, for sure. I'm curious, did you and your wife make it through? Yeah, Ma, we've been together 28 years, married 31 years together. Her name's Holiday Reinhorn. She's a fiction writer. She went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, and she toils away on these incredibly beautiful short stories that she publishes. And talk about that. Like, she'll work like a year on a short story and publish it, and like 137 people will read it because people don't really read But she loves it and she's brilliant and she's far more kind of spiritual and grounded than me. And we've worked on a lot of stuff together, been through a lot. And by far my greatest accomplishment is to work on this marriage, keep it going and learn how to be a better partner, to be more humble in what intimacy is. And it's related to happiness, I think, is intimacy because when you have intimacy, you have a greater well-being. But so many of us grew up, we don't learn intimacy. You have to learn yourself. I had to learn intimacy like from a therapist, which is almost embarrassing. But my parents didn't have intimacy. They never hugged. They never talked about emotions. I grew up in a household where if you had emotions, everyone like ignored you, shunned you, and pretended that the emotions didn't happen. So I had to learn how to do that. And it takes some doing, takes some work. I think this is a really important point you're making. And Actually, my wife and I went to a couple's counselor pre-pandemic, and he made the same point to us, which is that even if you had great parents, and I actually did have great parents who were touchy-feely with us and each other all appropriately, nobody ever really gives you interpersonal hygiene on any level. You're not taught how to be a friend or a coworker, and certainly not how to be a good partner in a romantic arrangement. We learn from our parents and the movies 
And the movies, were, which are designed to have heightened drama and keep you engaged, they cut out all the boring, important stuff, uh, the chopping of wood and carrying of water that's involved in a romantic partnership. Like listening. <laughs> that's an important one, listening to your partner and not trying to fix them. Guys have such that tendency to kind of like, you know, the partners will talk and I wonder if it is a guy thing. It must be a cultural kind of thing like, well, you should do, 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 do. And you should do, why don't you do blah, blah, blah. And why don't you fix it by calling so-and-so and just asking for a blah. Like, no one wants to hear that. I was the king of telling people the best way to do things. And what do I know? Well, speaking of what does Rain know, let's go back to your book. The thesis, as you explained it earlier, is that we need a spiritual revolution. What do you mean by that and how would it help? So great question. And that's the thesis of the book. I talk about there's two paths in spirituality and I compare them to TV shows. So the first path I compare to the show Kung Fu from the 70s, one of my favorite shows of all time. For those who don't know, it's about Kwai Cheng Kane, a Shaolin monk and martial artist who came from China to the Old West looking for his brother. And he encountered these racist cowboys and angry people and greedy people. And he brought his beautiful Eastern wisdom, Confucian, Taoist, Buddhist philosophy, and helped people along the way. And there were some good ass-kicking fights along the way as well. So that to me is a parallel to the spiritual path that most people walk when they engage with it, which is prayer and meditation. I want to make myself a better person. I want to bring my peace and tranquility that I generate internally and bring that to the world. And I want to grow in my own personal wisdom, et cetera. It's that personal spiritual path. The other show I talk about in the book is Star Trek. Because in Star Trek, which I believe personally, is one of the most spiritual shows of all time. And Roddenberry would hate that I'm saying that. But I really do believe that because what's happened in Star Trek, there's been a big war on planet Earth. And out of the ashes of that war, we've learned how to get along. Finally, we've created a world federation. We've eliminated income inequality. We've eliminated racism. We accept people of all different skin colors and classes and cultures and celebrate their diversity. And we've eliminated sexism. And then we're allowed to go out and boldly go into space and explore space as no man has done before. So to me, that's the other aspect of spirituality, which is communal, which is how can I help the world? How can I help make the world a better place? How can I relieve the suffering of others? Even the Buddha talked about that a great deal about you work on your own suffering and attachment and non-attachment so that you can go out in the world and relieve the attachment and non-attachment and suffering of others, right? And you do that through increased compassion. So this is humanity's maturation as evidenced by Star Trek. Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i Faith, says, all men were created to carry forward an ever-advancing civilization. So we all have a role to play. You play that role, Dan, beautifully in this podcast that has brought joy and inspiration and upliftment to millions and millions of people over the years. You're sharing your own personal story. This is your contribution. You don't need to be a podcast host or an actor to do it. You can be an accountant, 
You can be a housewife, a dog walker, a bus driver. It doesn't matter. You can be in service in your work. You can help other folks. You can create a grassroots movement. So the spiritual revolution is looking at those spiritual tools and looking at the current systems that are at play in the world that are so broken and so misguided. The example I use that still just stuns me is our healthcare system is based on profit. A healthcare system should be healing people who are sick, not profiting off of people's sickness. We almost want them to be more sick so that the industry can just make more money. So it's completely backward. We're not going to fix it with some legislation. We're not going to fix it with a bill being passed in Congress to don't itemize these bills in certain hospitals in these certain ways. That's not going to fix the problem. The system has been created without compassion in mind, without basic human spiritual integrity in mind. And we need to envision in some way, shape, and form a transformation of these systems that drive our contemporary society. And easier said than done. I know a lot of people might be rolling their eyes and being like, yeah, great idea. How do you do it? That's so naive and pie in the sky. And I get that. I I do try and address that, some spiritual practicalities for that. But more importantly, we just need to be engaging in a conversation of, hey, can we use spiritual tools to make the world a better place and to bring people together and heal division? I think one other point of skepticism might come from folks on the left who are like, we got a lot of people on the right who are waving around, quote unquote, spiritual books as they try to take away my rights. So why would I want any form of spirituality infecting or affecting political discourse? Yeah, and I get that. We've been bludgeoned with a lot of spirituality and religion. A lot of people suffer from religious trauma. Religion itself is responsible for some of the worst atrocities in human history. The list just goes on and on. I get it. And I have been personally attacked from both left and right online as I've been talking about my book and my television show about happiness. And from the left, oh, great, here's another proselytizing, pretend daddy God isn't going to save us and moralizing. And then from the right, if you're not saying that Jesus Christ is the way and the light and the only way to the Father is through him. When you're talking about like social justice issues, spirituality being used to tackle social justice issues, which can be distasteful to both sides. And again, that's okay. I don't really care. That's out of my control. But I do think that it applies to everyone. And I hope that Soul Boom reaches people who are fundamentalist Christians and might get something out of it and people that are diehard Marxist atheists that might get something out of it because I'm essentially just talking about increasing compassion and increasing service to others and building grassroots movements. That's the same stuff. I'm not comparing myself. I'm not comparing myself. It's the same stuff that Gandhi and Martin Luther King were talking about. And it's just, I just sparking a conversation is what I'm about. You referenced your new TV show. It's called Rain Wilson and the Geography of Bliss. It's on Peacock. You travel around the world to look at some of the happiest places on Earth. And there's kind of an intersection between the show and at least one of the chapters in the book. In one of the chapters in the book, you talk about the importance of pilgrimage or sacred spaces, Mm. sacred places Mm. that you would make a trip to. Why is 
pilgrimage so important in your view? And how could a regular person who doesn't have a TV show operationalize this insight into their daily lives? I thought this was a podcast only for people with TV shows. It would be a small audience, but very valuable for advertisers. Very influent, yeah. yes. All 37 listeners. Yeah, great question. So in Rain Wilson and the Geography of Bliss, I hated that they added my name to it. It should just be The Geography of Bliss, which is based on Eric Weiner's great travelogue. I go around the world looking for what makes us happy because maybe there are lessons to be learned from other cultures. Maybe we don't know everything here in America and we can learn something from Icelanders or people in Ghana, West Africa, or in Thailand, which are some of the places that I got to go. And in a way, the TV show was a kind of a pilgrimage. I got to take pilgrimages to deeply happy places and learn from some extraordinary individuals. That was amazing. And yeah, I have a chapter on sacredness. It's called The Sacred Pilgrims. I took a pilgrimage with my family to the Baha'i Holy Land. And I felt this holiness and sacredness everywhere I went. And it was so special. And this is in every faith tradition you can do. Every faith tradition has some kind of pilgrimage, even Buddhism, depending on the type of Buddhism. Maybe not Western kind of yoga class Buddhism, but in actual Buddhist practice, there are many different kinds of pilgrimages that are undertaken. Obviously, Mecca, Jerusalem, the Wailing Wall, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's many of these kind of holy places. In Native American and indigenous spiritual traditions, it might be a local mountain, you know, or the ta or a burial ground or the sacred stand of trees. In the chapter, again, I'm just raising questions. Why is it that we in our Western culture have lost all sense of the sacred? Now, it used to be that only churches were sacred. So again, we have this kind of trauma around the word sacred. Oh, sacred for my grandparents meant the church on Sunday and everything else was not sacred and of the devil. You know, there's a lot of that going around. But I do think that we've lost something by not considering more deeply how to create sacred spaces. We can create them in our home, in our backyard. We can create sacred activities. Sometimes my family will get together and just make pancakes on a Sunday morning. And it's a time of joy and light and celebration and relaxation that has a sacred feel to it. I talk about in the chapter, the haiku poet Basho from medieval Japan, who would journey about to shrines and villages and sacred places. And he would observe nature there. And then he would write a haiku and he would leave it behind. And he's considered the greatest haiku poet of all time. And I talk about him in terms of these sacred journeys because that is so beautiful to me because it's an intersection of faith, religion, spirituality, nature. It can't even be considered without the, considering the natural world. And art, the making of art and poetry. So they're all three interwoven seamlessly in Basho's pilgrimage. He's making art by reflecting on nature at these sacred and holy places, and he leaves a poem behind at each one. And I was just thinking, how could we, I don't have an answer, but how could we bring that into our lives? What do you think, Dan? What do you, what's a sacred space for you? Or how can you, what do you do to bring a sense of something sacred and transcendent, dare I say, holy into your life? 
It's interesting. You know, I have a bit of a gag reflex at phrases like sacred or sacred space or holy. And yet I realize that's counterproductive. I'm just saying it out loud. I also think if I'm hearing you correctly to maybe put it in different language, when you talk about sacred activities or places, it's please tell me if I'm wrong about this, an activity or a location that elevates you out of the more noxious aspects of the ego. Yes. And where there's a transcendent beauty connected with it that feels above the mundane. Right. So it could be that the common denominator is awe. Yeah. I think awe is a big aspect of it. Yeah, said. So I do my best, which is not good, to infuse that into as much of my moment-to-moment life as I can. And I find that meditation is really helpful at that because it's a systematic program designed to wake you up out of the automaticity and autopilot and sleepwalking that is the sort of mindset in which most of us live our lives. And so the more I'm doing that, just hanging out with my son and I can remember like, yeah, maybe not to check my phone right now. Same with literally any other human being. Then that it all becomes, if you want to use the word sacred, sacred. And can you generate awe? Like I'm in a crappy hotel room in Louisville, Kentucky right now. Can I generate awe staring at this faux granite countertop I'm uh, perched my laptop on? Yeah, why not? Think about all the hands that touched this slab of plastic. But culturally, so much of our external environment is based on crass materialism. And listen, I need to go down to the Costco just like the next guy and get the bulk toilet paper. I want to go down to the O'Reilly Auto Parts and get an oil filter. Like, we got to shop. I'm not like being anti-consumerist, but yet at the same time, so much of what I see when I drive around, especially Los Angeles, because... Well, I live in a small town outside of Los Angeles, which is prettier, but it's all this kind of box chain stores and boxy hotels and auto glass and grocery stores and parking lots and dumpsters and freeway divides and traffic lights. And we as a culture haven't sacralized the way that we do business. I don't know if it's possible, but... Do we really need to settle for that? Do we need to settle for a world in which we interact that's just so crass and ugly? And I don't know, I'm not trying to be elitist about it, but I feel like we should be talking about that a little more. I think it's both, just in my opinion, that yes, we should have more beautiful, awe-inspiring, transcendent places that are available to everybody because that does uplift the mind. And I think it's possible to generate awe in the face of anything. <laughs> if you, uh, I've riffed on this before, so I apologize if I'm being repetitive, apologizing to the listeners here. But if you just think about everything that has happened since the Big Bang, huge ocean of cause and effect. So what did it take in that chaos to land us at this moment? What did it take for that dumpster to get built and placed where it is, as ugly as it is, as you drive around doing your shopping? What did it take for this faux granite tabletop to get made? You can look at anything through the lens of cause and effect, the Buddhists would call it karma, and see it as holy or sacred or just holy shit. Yeah, I, yeah, that's well said. I struggle with that. And I don't know what the answer is because... We can't just have beautiful fountains everywhere and gardens everywhere. 
can we? Or maybe we can. I don't know, but I have a chapter on death, chapter on God, a chapter on consciousness, chapter on the meaning of life. Like these big spiritual questions are ones to ponder, they're ones to debate. And I think it's a really interesting conversation because culturally, I do think that we have lost something by losing our sense of the sacred, the profound, the mystical, and the holy. And I understand that distaste. I understand that bile coming up in the back of your throat. Holy, ugh, what does that mean? It sounds like holy water and some cleric with a with robes and some like antiquated ritual that has no bearing on my life. And I think nature also is obviously the greatest source of awe. And it's some place that we can go to that is is sacred. But guess what? We're not treating nature as sacred. We're not. Climate change is the granddaddy of looking at nature as unsacred. It's just something to be scooped up and spit out. Draw the elements we need from it, oil and nickel and copper and whatever. And then we just spew the detritus back into the soil and the earth. And I know that sounds like a hippy-dippy environmentalist, but there is a spiritual disease in our culture that causes us to accept that we treat nature in this way. Plus one. Coming up, Rain is going to talk us through an exercise where he creates the perfect religion, and he will explain why one non-negotiable ingredient is potlucks. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What is the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Many of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. This is something I've spoken about at length for many years with, with my therapist as somebody with a pronounced tendency toward overscheduling, uh, working on figuring out what I care most about, what matters most to me, has been very useful when it comes to setting priorities. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. This is perhaps a bit idiosyncratic, but one of the experiences that my son, Alexander, loves is mini golf. We recently went to a mini golf uh, themed restaurant in uh, in Denver where we were traveling. And uh, when we go to Montauk, which is our favorite beach town here on the East Coast, we play mini golf at Putt-Putt all the time. Alexander, his buddies, me. And in one way or another, these experiences are really what become the, the most memorable and important part about taking trips. Which brings me to Viator, which is a website and app where you can book travel experiences, everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. With over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries, there's something for everyone. I have used Viator myself. I find it to be incredibly helpful. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. You referenced the lists that you include in your book. And there's a list where you do this exercise of coming up with the perfect religion. Can you walk us through that list where you landed? Right. So I 
I have this chapter called, Hey Kids, forgive me, I'm looking at this chapter. It's called, Hey Kids, Let's Create the Perfect Religion. And I also have a list that talks about the 10 universal of all religious faith. And yeah, here's some of the elements of it. Some of the elements are, these are some favorite aspects of religions that I would love to see people gathering around and embracing. One is the centrality of the divine feminine. If you do a little reading around spiritual topics, you'll see that humanity, up until about 10,000 years ago, religious faith was based around the feminine. It was a goddess and the harvest energy and the mother earth. And we could learn so much from going back to some of those belief systems and getting away from this kind of patriarchal view of God and, again, aggression and survival of the fittest that has gotten us here. One of the aspects I draw on this list is the harmony of science and religion. I think there's this is one of the greatest false dichotomies in religious and spiritual debate is people, how many times have people said, oh, I don't believe in spirituality, I believe in science. Yeah, and I believe in science too. And I believe in spirituality. I think they're both ways of understanding life. They're both ways of understanding the world. One is process of, through experimentation, it's a process of understanding the physical processes and it's a data bank of knowledge. And spirituality is how to live in it, why we're here, what gives us meaning, what gives us purpose, and what other kind of mysteries of the universe might be there that we can't pick up yet on any kind of instrument or algorithm. So profound connection to the natural world, focusing a life on service, emphasis on music and the arts. The list goes on, and then I end with potlucks. Why potlucks? Potlucks is one of the greatest inventions, of course, Native American contribution to modern society, but potlucks bring people together. Everyone likes a hot dish. Everyone likes a casserole. Sometimes we don't like the vinegary bean salads. Those are the stuff that doesn't get eaten. But people coming together, bringing something, sharing together a communal table, like at its essence, at its heart, a great potluck is one of the greatest symbols of spiritual unity that exists. How often do you get to go to potlucks? Baha'is do potlucks all the time. Baha'is are very good at potlucks. So every other month I'm at a potluck. I love it. It does combine the social interaction we all need with a kind of a leveling effect of sharing food. Yeah. Everyone likes food. Everyone likes sharing. And it's a great way to celebrate diversity too. If you're with immigrant families and there's dishes from around the world and you're sharing what you love about your cultural heritage and it's celebrating the diversity too, which is another one of my main tenets of building the perfect religion is celebrating diversity. We are all flowers of one garden and a garden is most beautiful when it has a variety of different flowers and we need to celebrate different skin colors and different ethnic heritages and different music and different ways of being social and embrace that. It's one of the strongest, best things about being a human being. And potlucks do that essentially. I really appreciate you talking about potlucks, that and other aspects <laughs> of your own life in this conversation. And to watch this change from, it sounds like in your 
office days that there were times when you did inhabit the darker aspects of Dwight Schrute's personality. And, and <laughs> it also seems like you've wrestled with and exercised some of these demons. And that's very cool to, to see and to hear about. And that's one reason why I wrote this book, because I think the essential question is like, why the hell is the guy who played Dwight writing a book on spirituality? Who the hell is this guy? But, you know, I've been sharing my story for a while now, and I share my personal story because it's a way in, again, to looking at spiritual tools and faith-based wisdom. And it was important to me, you know, it helped me. And I want to share that on a personal level. And I also think, Dan, it's really friggin' important. We're in the midst of some of the biggest crises that humanity has ever faced. The mental health crisis among young people right now is staggering. It's horrific. And guess what? There are spiritual tools that can help heal this mental health epidemic. You address a lot of them on your podcast. And you look at climate change, and there are spiritual tools that can help us heal our relationship to the natural world. There's the threat of war. So these discussions is not like an airy-fairy, new-agey thing, like, oh, I'll do yoga class and a crystal and read an Eckhart Tolle quote and think about it. Like, they're tools that we need. It can save lives. It can bring people together. It can help humanity and it helped me personally, and it can help other people. So I'm, that's why I talk about it as a spiritual revolution. Like I wanted to have some impact in what I'm talking about. It's not just, oh, here's a nice little fun little hobby side pursuit. I know we're almost out of time, but just on this question of impact, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'm just going to say a few words about how I think about it. And maybe you can tell me if you agree or disagree. I think I fundamentally agree with you that many of the world's most intractable problems level up to psychological, emotional, slash spiritual problems in the human animal. And it's going to be addressing those that will hopefully help us move the needle on some of the big problems. And I, in terms of my own work and my own impact, I don't know that I think uh, we, we humans have always had like really big problems. And I don't know that anything I'm doing or anything I'm a part of doing is going to level up to the, to fixing them fundamentally and slash, but I think if I and you can help individuals improve their own lives, that's actually really not nothing. And maybe it adds up to some sort of larger impact, but even in and of itself. If anybody's listening to this conversation and they decide to take it seriously, it will improve their lives and that does ripple out. Yeah, very well said. And we know this from positive psychologists that as you strive to help others, it actually helps you. We live in a culture that's, oh, I'll be happier if I accrue more stuff and I gain more social capital. But in actuality, you're happier when you're helping others. And that was one of the great benefits of doing The Office is I can't tell you the people every day. It was like, thank you for this show. You made me laugh. I was going through such a hard time. Laughter is so important. Thank you for the stories. The show got me through COVID, et cetera, on and on. I will say that two things, because you'd asked about this, hey, kids, let's build a perfect religion. Two elements that I just want to bring up, which I think go along with this. One is that we need to create a new mythology of humanity. The old mythology, real quick, is that there's different tribes, we all hated each other, 
We battled, we went to war, and it was survival of the fittest, backstabbing, dog eat dog, may the best man win, don't tread on me, every man for himself, and survival of the fittest, strongest one. The worst aspects of humanity, aggression, contest, adversarialism. There's a different mythology. We helped each other. We cooperated with each other. We traded with each other. We learned from each other. Over the course of human history, there's a different history book that can be written, a new mythology of humanity that we grew up together, we grew wiser together. We've, we've helped and abetted each other and humbly learned from each other's cultures and traded. And this is another aspect of who we are. We're not just these self-centered animals. That's part of who we are. Definitely, you have to acknowledge that. But there's a whole other part of who we are as well. And I'll finish by saying another one of the takeaways I put at the end of the book about what is necessary for a spiritual revolution, we've addressed a little bit, which is creating joy, fostering joy, and squashing cynicism. We have to believe that we can make a difference and we can change things. It's so important. If we live in cynicism and pessimism, and oh, we'll never change, things aren't going to change. And the forces of darkness, the Voldemorts win. The eyes of Sauron win if we're pessimistic. So we have to experience joy, release joy, give joy to others, and believe that we can make a change. And I think that's crucial for a spiritual revolution. Just a couple of things to say in response. <laughs> one, I'm one of those people who feels like your performance, specifically in the show generally, has been a pretty significant value add in my life and definitely during COVID. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Another thing to say is that I just really agree with you on pretty much everything you said, that you can look at the human condition through the lens of original sin, that we are just, we start broken. And the only way out is through something way beyond us. And and maybe that's true, but I my view is closer to what you described, which is we have it all. We have the full catastrophe available to us in our repertoire, really shitty aspects and really amazing aspects. And there are bugs in the human software, but there's a huge feature and you articulated it, which is, and I think this is, if there's a way out of our problems, this is it. Doing good for others is of benefit to us. That is a massive feature in the human operating system. And like you said, well, why does Dwight Schrute have any right to write about spirituality? Same could be said to like a C-level network newsman. What the fuck am I doing talking <laughs> about this? But in my humble view, that aspect of the human operating system is the way out. Mm, that's beautiful, man. And that's a, just a great place to start. We're like, well, how do I start a spiritual revolution? It's like, well, do unto others and serve others, and it'll make your life happier and better. Just start small. Bring a hot dish and a casserole over to a sick relative. Start small. Build from there. It starts to become more and more important in your life, and you start realizing, I can't really live my life unless I'm doing service to others. And we can start there, and it will snowball. Before I let you go, can you please remind everybody of the name of your new book and also the name of your new TV show and where we can find both? The book is called Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution, and it can be found anywhere you like to buy your books. Please support independent bookstores. Uh, number two, Rain Wilson and the Geography of Bliss. 
debuts May 18th, 2023 on the Peacock streaming service, Home of the Office. How about that synergy? In which I travel the world looking for happiness. It's a, it really, Dan, you're going to love the show. It's really uplifting and fun and funny and goofy. And it just makes you feel warm and makes you appreciate other cultures. And it's kind of the antidote for the times we're living in. So I hope people will check it out. Rain, such a pleasure. Good on you for using your platform for such a positive set Look, of we've got a minor television sitcom actor <laughs> and a C-level minor newsman having conversations about transformational spirituality and happiness. Look at us. That's great. It's been such a pleasure. I've been a huge fan of what you've been doing for such a long time. I'm glad we were able to make this happen. And thanks for taking time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Rain Wilson. They always tell you, I don't know who they is in this case, but the conventional wisdom is that you shouldn't meet people uh, who are your heroes. Uh, but Rain did not let me down at all. It's great, great to meet him. Thank you as well to everybody who listens to this show. If you've got a, a minute to do us a solid, go rate us and review us. That always helps. And thanks finally to everybody who worked so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Tara Anderson, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. And we get our theme music from Nick Thorburn of Islands. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode. We're going to talk to fan favorite Dr. Luana Marquez. She's an anxiety expert. She's out with a new book with a three-part plan for uh, transforming anxiety. It's something way better. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta Sky Miles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone, check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura, no murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now ad-free on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.